Hey, it's Luke. It's a range of care week, and the topic is one of the toughest things we've ever talked about. Cutting right to the heart of so much, maybe most, maybe like pretty much all of the chaos, uncertainty, and fission in contemporary American life. Can we have honest, principled, open-hearted disagreements in such polarized, fraught times? I've been worried for years about what comes next if we don't find a way to do that. We've been witnessing for decades what cultural siloing has done to our country, and after two years of a pandemic, the unrest following the murder of George Floyd, the fracture post-January 6th, and now, just in the last couple days, the chaos, fear, and confusion following the leak of the draft Supreme Court decision that appears extremely likely to overturn Roe v. Wade. I honestly don't know how we come back from all this, and maybe we can't come back, but kind of, you know, the whole point of range, the whole reason we're doing this, we have to try, right? It's a super pessimistic way to start an episode, but that's the vibe in America right now, isn't it? And it's been the vibe for a while. A lot of the blame for the schism gets leveled at social media and the algorithms that invisibly guide basically everything we do online. You will never catch me defending big tech as a good faith actor in the public square, much less as a savior of it. And we are more separate than we've ever been in my lifetime. At the same time, though, cultural siloing wasn't invented with the internet. I was raised splitting time between two cultural silos long before I ever plugged a phone cord into a modem and started surfing the early internet. This is close to my heart because this divide is a divide I've felt in my life for most of my life. And again, we would be fools to think tech policy will save us, much less the people who run technology and social media platforms. There's no incentive. The fracture has proven too lucrative. And here's why this is important, though. Because conversation, debate, and disagreement is the grist in the mill of democracy. We talk about the danger of authoritarianism taking away our rights. Lately, to be honest, I've been more worried about us freely giving them away to anyone who claims they can break the stalemate. Trump is the obvious example, but there are plenty more. If you've been following the debate about Elon Musk buying Twitter, you see a bunch of conservatives and libertarians who believe a billionaire is going to save them and their free speech rights. And that's easy to mock and lots of liberals have, but the same thing happened for nearly 50 years with Roe v. Wade. Congress had a number of opportunities to codify Roe into law, but we just couldn't bring ourselves to have the argument. And so we left its fate in the hands of nine unelected elites. So think about the way Trump has become less a man than a symbol of everything his followers hope to accomplish. Now think about the way Ruth Bader Ginsburg became a literal brand and not just a brand, almost a mystic symbol for people who desperately wanted to preserve the right to bodily autonomy. Does that feel healthy to you? Either of those. Think about the level of investment we put into our politicians now, into Trump, into RBG, into Bernie Sanders. <laughs> and in, I mean, into Joe Biden right now, like, <laughs> given what he's been able to accomplish, I laugh to keep from crying. Trusting them to fix everything because we're struggling to even stay on speaking terms with our families. People were worried about Trump and his supporters trying to seize power on January 6th. I was too. Lately, I've been more worried about us giving it away. So that was all the backdrop when Meg pitched this idea. Everything except the Supreme Court. That hadn't happened yet. But the question we sort of sought to talk about today is, can we begin to repair these ruptures by just learning to talk to each other again and have hard conversations disagree in a way that might 
bring us closer together. Even if we don't agree, can we find a way to acknowledge and sit with the discomfort of our mutual humanity in disagreement? It's the usual range of care crew, Megan Ingrid with me chiming in. And the conversation's good. I hope you get a lot out of it. It's also incomplete and just the beginning of ongoing conversations we want to have around these topics. So before we begin, I want to call a few things out just explicitly. It's three white cisgender people discussing this, and we're doing it as an opening salvo. We spend a lot of time as people of the dominant culture talking about how we need to step up and be frontline allies for other people, but we also we also recognize this conversation can't stop here. It probably shouldn't have started here, to be honest, but we're committing that it will not stop here. We've already scheduled the follow-up with Inga Laurent, a professor at Gonzaga University School of Law, who has dedicated her life to restorative justice, basically the act of healing communities through tough conversations like this. She's a dear friend and one of the smartest people I know on the topic of conflict resolution and sort of theorist who thinks about how to heal society at large through one-on-one or you know small group conversations. Restorative justice is basically the act of restoring an entire community when a fracture has occurred, when a crime has occurred, when some sort of trauma has occurred. In this episode, Megan Ingrid talk a lot about how as therapists, they have to make space for whatever baggage and viewpoints people bring. That's just the job. And how it's a model for being able to have productive disagreements across ideological differences you have to make space for the other person, even if, <laughs> despite how vehemently you disagree with them, you have to grant them their personhood and their autonomy, and then you have to trust them to do the same to you. I just wanted to make really, really clear at the top that we absolutely do not need to make space for hate or anything that dehumanizes people or groups. And no individual person has a responsibility to take on any one of these fights if they don't feel comfortable or safe doing so. It's going to take those who have the energy and the wherewithal and honestly, the, the, the personal feelings of safety to have these fights and to carry water to some degree for those who don't feel safe doing so. So the way we're thinking about this episode is that it's intended to be a starting point really for the people who have no excuse not to have these conversations, to be completely honest, people who are part of the dominant culture, people like me, and then just anybody who feels safe having these kinds of disagreements, the tools to have productive conversations. We'll have Inga Laurent on soon to broaden that conversation. And that'll be the first two of what becomes an ongoing series of these. Continually checking in, thinking of new angles, finding new folks to bring into the conversation. And as always, you, the listener, are a vital part of this conversation. So please, again, let us know how you feel. Give us feedback about this episode, about subsequent episodes. It really does help us shape coverage. I will leave it there for now. On the other side, Meg, Ingrid, and a little bit of me talking about productive disagreements. Let's get into it. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Welcome back. We've had a slightly longer than intended gap between episodes. It turns out that along the journey to develop a consistently released podcast, at least for me, there have been a few detours. 
some of which have consisted of necessary recharge breaks. And we're just going to let that be okay for now. After all, there's no one way to unpack from a pandemic, is there? But today we want to ask a different question, talk about a different matter altogether, something that's been on all of our minds in one way or another an awful lot lately. Is it okay to disagree? I recognize that this may seem like a rhetorical question, and you might hear yourself saying, um, of course it is. But if you look around, if you listen to the news, if you read the paper, if you just watch the world around you, the evidence that disagreeing is an okay thing to do feels pretty sparse these days. And, as it turns out, this isn't particularly new news either. There's an op-ed piece in the New York Times by Brett Stevens from 2017 titled The Dying Art of Disagreement. It's the text from a lecture he gave at the Lowy Institute Media Award Dinner in Sydney, Australia that same year. Stevens is a Pulitzer Prize-winning American journalist and editor. And in this lecture, he offers a very important take on what has happened to our ability to have productive disagreements. Two things. First, Stevens himself notes that he attended the University of Chicago to read, and I quote, the great books. For those of us who do not know what this is, it's a comprehensive non-credit course of study at the University of Chicago in which students read the great works of literature and philosophy and more with the intent of exploring, discussing, and even debating a multitude of perspectives. Second, it's considered a liberal education, and Stevens is considered a neoconservative. Stevens notes that from this experience, he learned that every great idea is really just a spectacular disagreement with some other great idea. He goes on to note that being able to say, I disagree, is what defines our individuality, gives us freedom, improves our tolerance, our perspectives, our progress, and it's at the core of effective democracies. But the issue is that we are failing at this. Don't get me wrong. We disagree quite frequently, and about a lot of different things, from healthcare to politics to education to environment to race to gender to identity. It's not whether or not we agree or disagree that is the issue, but how we do it and how far we've come from disagreement being a necessary catalyst. Brene Brown herself noted in her 2018 book, Braving the Wilderness, that for many of us, the ability to have productive disagreements is lost. What we see and what the research shows, what the Brookings Institute has found is that more and more we view differing perspectives as literal moral threats to our own well-being and to the welfare of our world. That we now believe that it's acceptable to act violently to shut these alternative perspectives down. There are a lot of problems with this, chief of which is that disagreement is fundamental to who we are. Without it, there is no change, no progress, and frankly, no growth. Imagine a world where no one disagrees. Okay, I know, you're all sitting there going, hmm, that sounds just lovely. But wait a few minutes until you see that it's impossible, and it's a bit like imagining a world with only happy people. Once all the other feelings are gone, happiness goes away too, because you need all those other perspectives to be able to see who you are. My name is Meg Curtin-Raybear, and I'm a psychotherapist. This is Range of Care, a series of conversations exploring the intersections of our mental health, 
the biology of human emotion, our body's response, and the social, cultural, political, and environmental happenings in our communities. Today, we're going to talk about productive disagreements, why we need them, what they look like, and maybe even a little bit about how to have them. Joining me is my friend and co-host, Ingrid Price, child psychotherapist. Before we get started, one important thing. This podcast is not therapy. It's not intended to replace therapy in any way. But today's conversation is likely to be intense and triggering because disagreement is not comfortable. That's kind of the point. Please take care of yourself. Stop listening or take breaks if you need. Listen to your body. To start us off, if we start at the basics, let's talk a little bit about why disagreement is so important, why it's fundamental to who we are. Hello, welcome back. I think we're going to agree about disagreement, right? Isn't that kind of the plan? And then we might fumble and we might disagree, but I think um, we're going to give you a little taste of what we see, yeah. um, maybe within our families that we work with, and also what we see kind of in the world around us. Let's start. Let's start with kids. Okay. I mean, if we think about, if we kind of distill it down to the very beginning, disagreement is all around us, right? And we see it at a really early age. I mean, if you think about babies, pre-verbal babies crying, sometimes it's about hunger. Sometimes it's about wet clothing. You know, I mean, there's a list of things, but sometimes it's about not wanting what's happening. Mm -hmm. They're very quick to provide a disagreement. Right. While they explore, explore their universe around. And so the hardest part is that we constantly are trying to create the safest way for them to navigate the things that they right. want and don't want, or we don't want them to get into. I was thinking, you know, we were talking about, obviously we can go parent to child, but I like the idea of going child to child. So let's break it down into like the zero to three children, mm -hmm. toddlers per se, not quite verbal, but very loud. What's one of the first words they learn after mama and papa or mama and dada? No. Yeah. And yeah. mine. Yeah. <laughs> those are two of my favorite words still, <laughs> frankly, but we'll get into those, that some other day. No and mine. Yeah. And it's constant. And that's what really needs to be talked about with the zero to three is that they're going to do everything by model, you know, the model behavior that they see from others, but also this impulsivity of wanting what they want right then. Um, we've all seen a toddler take a toy or a food or whatever. And the immediate response usually is violence. <laughs> I hate to say it, but like grabbing it back or smacking it out of the hand, that can be the way that they provide, like, I don't like what you just did or said, and I'm going to stop that. It's immediate. And then as they get older, you have this, you know, five to eight range, you know, so the early years of school, kindergarten through third, fourth grade. And what I've noticed um, when I work with kids, but also when I've worked in the school system is that when disagreement happens between children, teachers or the adults are so often telling them to use their words and problem solve. Yet we hardly ever give them the words to use. So we expect them to have this dialogue and vocabulary to have this reasoning of understanding when they're still in this impulsive state of, I mean, they're not too far off from the no and mine stage. And so we tend to not model the right way, but to request that they do it this way that even adults can't do properly. So we know that kids disagree from a very early age. Mm -hmm. 
not quite like it looks like in adults, but, you know, taking something away from someone or saying no is a form of disagreement. And so they're having these experiences of what? Trying to begin to form their identity? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And starting to understand their own egocentrism, right? Like the world does revolve around me. And therefore, why would you tell me that I need to follow your rules? Okay. But then we, as they get older and their social situations expand, the way in which we respond to children when they're disagreeing is to ask them to do things we haven't taught them to do. I, that's what I see a lot. Um, I mean, I think it's changing with our social emotional curriculum in school. I think it could get a lot better. I think there's a lot of need for growth. I think there's a lot of uh, need for growing empathy instead of just trying to get solution focused. Yeah, we were talking about that earlier. So then if I'm hearing you correctly, the early stages of disagreement being an uncomfortable place to mm. be. Oh, of course. Is there. Of course. And think about it. This is when a child starts to recognize what dissent is from the majority. They start to get that feeling in that classroom of thinking like, well, most of the kids picked Kit Kat and I don't want to pick the Snickers bar. <laughs> what if the Snickers bar is bad? It could be as simple as that. But also in regards to... Kit Kat's better, by the way. I Agreed. Agreed. Hmm. Luke might Depends be different. Yeah. <laughs> Luke's the dissenter. The <laughs> um, this is what we don't talk about is that the power of the majority, right? But there's also the dissenter that has that hidden influence. They change attitudes in private more than public. So how does that look at this like little kind of social experiment of first graders, second graders? Especially when then our solution from a school structure or even potentially home structure is to say, use your words. We also always say, just get along. Everybody just needs to get along for the greater good, for the milieu, right? Does that teach healthy disagreement? It's an accidental, like... <laughs> kind of backfired. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like, just go along with it because it's easier for everybody if you just go along with, even if it doesn't feel right. And so we're, we're teaching this at such a young age that as we go into the next phase, right, we're going into like that 10, 11, 12 year old that's just starting to get to that base of autonomy in their development. And they're like, well, I don't even know who I am because I've only gone with the majority. And now you're hitting an area that I have some passion for because the stereotypes around pre-adolescent development, especially, and I, I'm going to gender, I'm going to Mm -hmm. gender here for just a minute, especially stereotypically around girls or people who we perceive as identifying as girls, is that they're going to be mean to each other. They're going to do these terrible things to one another. And that's just what girls do. And I, you know, that hen pecking. And is there some biology behind that? Sure. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. An identity development, like a big, huge identity development phase of adolescence. But I noticed that same thing, like, oh, that's what girls do. Okay. Um, I've often wondered that, like, is, is that the only option? Like, can we, can we have an option where like, maybe we don't do that? And, and I wonder, is that because the only alternative is to promote disagreement? It is hard to go against any of the majority in any capacity. It's very, very hard when you're trying to figure out who you are as a young person. When we can go from what we wear how we present, um, how we do academically, athletically, all of these things are developing who they are and how they fit into this world around them. Feel if they grow up in a home where disagreement is really healthy, 
and they witness their parents having very neutral ground almost. My dad thinks this way. My mom thinks this way. It's kind of funny when they have conversations or my parents. Then they start to question a little bit easier and they recognize that hidden influence and also that power that's there. But that's really hard to find. And that takes a lot of confidence. I don't think that anybody has that naturally when you grow up in the systems that we have in place right now. And I guess I hadn't put those pieces together that really those moments where we see young people struggling like that, you know, that are an integral part of their formation of who they are, are really about their ability to navigate disagreeing. Mm -hmm. I don't like that or I do like that or what it means to feel the social need to pick the popular group when in fact you don't like anyone in the popular group. Yeah, or what they stand for even. But the need to fit in is so organic. Like it's just, we all have it. We want to connect to the people around us, right? Even if it's not, doesn't quite make sense. I'd rather do that than be alone. Except then it feels uncomfortable. Both do. Right. You're picking the less the lesser discomfort, who knows, right? And then we, I mean, and then we're going to get older, right? So now we've gone from preteens to teenagers. And I mean, and I think the access to information is coming a lot earlier too. And I think that also needs to be noted with the internet, with the way the algorithms work on social platforms, but even like Google, you know, that's an algorithm in itself. And don't ask me any more IT questions. That's as deep as I go right there. The way information is given to you and to me is very different just based on who we are and or what, what we you buy hear and yeah. what we hear and what we even say, as well as, you know, my 14 year old niece or however that looks to her on her phone is going to be very different than it looks on my phone. We have this information overload, which I never had as a child or a teenager. So all that other stuff, that angst of going through the majority that still existed, that's been around forever. But now we have more information in this funneled version of what I think I want. And then it just keeps mm. getting delivered to me. Without vetting mm. of any kind. It's, it, I mean, it's interesting because when I was doing some research, there are definitely sort of multiple schools of thought on this, including people who think that the way in which news is given to our young people is dramatically affecting our ability to disagree well. And then others who think it has more to do with racism and uh, you know, other kind of more concrete divisiveness that's existed for longer than that. It's likely somewhere in the middle, but it, it is, it's hard not to notice if you're a parent of a teen, how much information they have access to, what it looks like, what it sounds like, whether or not it's true. I mean, I think for me, one of the things that I definitely feel has got to be a contributing factor to our ability to, to do anything collectively is the idea of how much false information could potentially be out there. And are we teaching anyone to navigate that? I, I do think that it's coming up more after this year that we're starting to teach how to navigate the internet, how to navigate the information overload. But what I see, I mean, when I work with parents of teenagers is that they're like, I want them to have their own autonomy, to figure out who they are, what a beautiful opportunity that is. But then they come to me with this incredibly polarized opinion and that's opposite of mine. And I'm like, okay, that's really uncomfortable because now I'm sitting across from my 16 year old and they're telling me, and I know that that's not true, but I'm trying to foster this ability for them to grow and to find their own answers. Yet I see the molding happening. And where's that disagreement? How do you nurture that? Do you provide alternative resources? Do you, what does that look like? 
That's an excellent question. It's tricky with parents because I think there's a lot of emotion involved. And there are two areas that in parenting, you know, kind of all parents would prefer to avoid. One is when your children have differing social views from you. The other is when they have differing political views from you. It's really, really tricky. And that aside, when you're watching it potentially happen, how do you engage? Full court press never really works. On anything, I think. Not where disagreement is concerned because, and and that's what we know, healthy disagreement requires the ability to understand the other person. Which is empathy. That's what the research shows. (laughs) So... How do we input, you know, we say to our kids, of course, like I I'm unconditionally love you, right? Like I unconditionally am there for you. I'm incredibly empathetic yet. Don't do that. <laughs> I don't know if that is exactly what is happening because I, I don't see it from their perspective. It's very hard. I am the all knowing as the parent, you are still the child. Therefore, there is no disagreement. Here's what I would say to that. There are these moments as adults and as parents, where we absolutely need to be able to draw lines, right? We're not going to do that. We don't do that. They're most effective when they're about safety, Mm. but they're equally as important when they're about our values. The trick is to be able to do all of that while also teaching this idea of empathy and understanding. I mean, if we could have a buzzword for this episode, that would be it. Empathy and understanding, they equal each other. You know, like if you little imagine a little equation in your mind's eye right now, empathy equals understanding, understanding equals empathy. They, they are each other. I think the concern is for a lot of people is that understanding, like, like it's almost like we've misdefined it, that understanding equals agreeing. Right. And it's not. Not at all. And I do a lot of work in family therapy on that. In fact, that is the majority of family therapy for most families is about getting to that place where we understand that we can be understood and understand someone else without agreeing. And when people achieve that, it's literally why I do what I do because it is absolutely magical. And I don't ever promise to anyone I work with that I'm going to reduce the amount of discussions they have, that I'm somehow going to eliminate stressors or challenges. That's not the commitment of a therapist or family therapy. It's that I'm going to, they're going to leave therapy knowing that when the thing comes up, they know how to talk about it. They know how to listen to one another. They know how to put their own idea on the table and pick up someone else's without an agenda. I mean, that's the key, right? That, that especially the older we get, like it, there's almost a balance, I think. And tell me if you disagree or not, but from my perspective, when our kids are little, we get to have a little bit more agenda. I think that's what right. I was trying to say before. Mm-hmm. Like we get to say, nah, we're, you know, we don't talk to people like that and our kid can disagree and we're going to go, yeah, I hear you. And I love you. And we still don't talk to people like that. And, you know, sometimes the parenting is even that simple. Like you don't need to get into a big debate because on along their journey, find themselves, we are their bumpers. But as our kids get older, I think one of the things I've seen the whole entire time I've been a family therapist is that we 
I think first and foremost, make the mistake of thinking, well, I taught you this already, so you should know it. And everything we know about prefrontal cortex development in mid-teens to mid-20s is repeat, 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 right? Anything you think you taught them, just feel free to teach them again. But the other thing is that we don't then shift from that, no, we don't do that in this family, to can we talk about why you thought we should do that in this family? I think that's great. I I actually do this a lot with my families. As I say, you have three buckets. You have non-negotiable, which is just non-negotiable. Usually it's a safety thing. We ride, when we ride our bikes, we wear helmets. It's non-negotiable. When we're in the car, we wear a seatbelt. You know, these absolute non-negotiables. And that's going to change for every family. But I think that bucket should be smaller like right. as the child gets older. And then it gets into negotiable. And that negotiable piece is like, okay, well, why do you want to stay out later? What does that look like? You know, it, and that allows for, I'm going to hear you. I may not give you the answer that you want, but I allow, I'm holding capacity for you to state why you think it's okay. Right. You know, the research around uh, healthy discussions, healthy arguing, healthy disagreeing is that we need to feel safe in ourselves when we do this. Brene Brown talks about this a lot, that idea of having a soft, vulnerable front in large part because if you believe the argument that as parents in particular, it's our job or to nurture that development in our young people, if we only ever say no, then what happens to their the idea for them that they can disagree? So it's this interesting piece where, yes, absolutely, as our kids get older, that bucket A mm-hmm. gets smaller, But our own process also has to develop with that. What happens if we can't compromise? Absolutely. They stop coming to us. We lose the ability to have any communication, not just disagreement. You know, we're left out of the things that we even want to agree with them on. The conversation stops. It becomes a halted. Right. They don't share the good nor the bad. I'm wondering, so I know we're sort of talking about kids and and young adults and family dynamics. And I wonder if this would be a good point to sort of talk about the bumpers that we're going to place around this conversation. Like I, I hear and resonate when you say like, the only way to have a healthy disagreement is to understand the other person, the person you're in disagreement with, even if you don't agree with them. How far does that extend, right? Because there are right. there are debates in our society right now, and this is part of what we're talking about and part of, you know, getting out of the family. Well, Family and politics is oil and water frequently as well, so it's not exclusive of that. We're having debates where one side is like, this is who I am, and the other side is like, you are not a person, thinking about trans rights stuff. And this is happening right across the border from us, 30 miles away. Part of really what we're talking about is healing our society and healing the world. So if you're the sort of person that wants to heal the world and be a part of it, be if you're part and if you're part of a historical outgroup, what is the, the responsibility of any individual person to walk up to somebody who just got done saying trans women aren't women and say, well, I disagree with you and I'm going to take the time to understand your viewpoint. And now we're going to have a debate and we're going to heal the world together. Like, is this probably not an appropriate conversation for three cis white people to have? Or can we at least start the conversation? Or do we want to bracket that whole thing and sort of, again, we should probably say this is like going to be the first of many, many conversations probably about this that won't always be under range of care. But like, this is kind of fundamental to what we've been talking about throughout the history of range. And I think one of the reasons we wanted to start range in the first place. So how do you guys feel about that? The most extreme examples of of this, which are the most in the news right now and are the most 
triggering and painful and, you know, for the folks that are living it, living through it. It's interesting because I think a couple things come up for me at the same time. So I'll, I'll tackle them a bit by bit. Ingrid will chime in yes, when I will. she's ready. You know, years ago when I was still in graduate school and taking the requisite multicultural class. And it was only just one class because that's all the multiculturalism you need, even in a liberal university. Well, I'm a little bit on the older side. <laughs> I don't know if that's changed recently, but when I was in school, yes, it was a one and done. And we, all of you out there disagreeing with that, um, just know I'm right there with you. But our, our the professor at the time you know, because it, it came up and I was actually, I'll share this much. I was in New Mexico, which is, you know, white people are not the majority there. And so it was a pretty multicultural class. But one of the questions that kept coming up is who's responsible for having these dialogues? And I'll never forget my teacher who was of Asian descent saying, and which she shared with us, saying it's the dominant culture's job to have these conversations to push these conversations forward. And so I share this because, you know, I absolutely am not going to say that I ha am in any way, shape, or form an authority on any particular group's experience. But what I am an expert at is how we communicate. And as a person from the dominant culture, I think that I do feel a certain amount of responsibility to move the needle, to push for greater attention to how, how divisive we've become, how much we are not caring for one another, how we are not creating space for people of different identities. The conversation in general. Yeah. And it's from that perspective that I want us to have this conversation. I like that. I like where you're going with that because to be able to disagree well and artfully, we first have to understand well. We have to listen, empathize, and almost grant um, moral respect, just like human to human, to have the ability and capacity to even start the art of disagreement. Right. And it's an interesting thing that you bring up, Luke, because there are some no-goes in, you know, as a therapist, I would say this to anyone. Like, nobody has to tolerate abuse, mm -mm. Yeah. right? Yep. And and we talk about this in family therapy. We, we talk about this in couples work. I'm sure, Ingrid, that you talk about this to some extent in parenting, depending on what's going on. But there are definitely rules of play. And in fact, in my research uh, for this conversation, that's one of the things that came up. The rules of play have changed. There used to be rules of play that, that meant when you were sitting across from someone, you you it was safe to assume that they were not judging you. It was safe to assume that you could be vulnerable or, or, or you could at least put out an idea that they disagreed upon. And that didn't mean that their safety was in question. That's what, that's changed. That has changed. Yes. There is no freedom to have conversations that are uncomfortable well, without almost like a prerequisite being like, I'm going to, I'm going to say something and it might offend you. Right. Trigger warnings. I mean, I, I don't get me wrong. I get the trigger warnings are very important, but it's also an interesting concept. Mm -hmm. And do I have to tell you that I might say something controversial? Because if, if I, if I don't, then what, if you don't say it, yeah. What happens then? The simple example of this is just two people who are having a conversation without the world around them. There's a tacit acknowledgement in what we're talking about here that like both people sort of 
arguing to a mutual self-respect that is not necessarily going to be the case in all of these situations, especially these edge cases where there are like serious, like where we're talking about questions of uh, a I person. Would, you know, oh, okay. So right I'm going to disagree with you just in that. I don't think it's limited to the edge anymore, Luke. I think that's why we're here because I mean, let me no, back think, that up. So a little I think that's bit. totally yeah. true, but it's still okay to have an edge. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But I think what's, what's even like, it has always bothered me that this isn't something we teach from the get go, but I don't even know if I think we have an edge anymore. I mean, I think you can have disagreements with your friends, but I think even that art is in some circles dying. Is there an edge? Absolutely. And I think we need as people of the dominant culture to be protecting that edge as much as we can, which is why I want us to be having these conversations. How do we, all of us, get back to it being safe for there to be ideas that aren't ours? I think it goes back to increasing empathy and increasing the capacity for empathy. If we think about having a conversation with a friend who disagrees me, right? And then having a conversation with a stranger who disagrees with me, they're very different. Yeah. I have a lot, I hold more empathy for my friend. So my ability to see their pain, to recognize their identity, I, I take all of that into account when I'm having that conversation. With a stranger, I'm not going to have that, that same level unless, and, and we, I mean, we've seen, there's the study of the secret of empathy about the ice bucket. Remind back. me. Okay. I'm going to give you like the most Reader's Digest version, but it was that there was a study that I would sit across from a stranger, so you'd be the stranger and you would put your hands in an ice bucket and I would tell you when to take them out. Why would I do that? Well, this is the whole point, right? <laughs> and my, my goal and what they're, what they're measuring is how quick I tell you to take them out. Right? So they have two groups. One is just two strangers. We sit across, they time it. Okay. Uh, and the other, the other group, other. the other group, no, they just get 15 minutes to play a game they're in a common room with a we and so they're just like oh we'll just play together the difference of that 15 minutes of them just enjoying something a, a small connection increased their empathy so when they sat across from that person that they just played with they said no get your hands out of those bucket versus the strangers that's how simple it is it's like when we come together in crisis exactly when we have that crisis response we don't think about anything besides how do we just make sure we're all safe so, Luke, I want to go back to what you brought up, though, because I feel like we didn't quite finish. Well, so what just even what you're talking about there, it's like if we sort of exclude the edge cases or, or at least bracket them off, it actually strikes me that one of the things that I think about a lot as a person who came from like a conservative, religious, rural upbringing and had to flee it because I was in the out group in that situation. And now that, you know, like I'm in this, you know, the liberal bastion of Spokane, Washington, and that's like sort of, you know, the dominant, at least on the cultural side, like American media culture and, and mass media culture. The in-group and out-group is only a desi is a designation that's based on perspective. And it strikes me that if those ideologies that we agree are edge and need to sort of die if we're going to live in a society where everybody is given the, the humanity they deserve. So let's say, let's just say like Nazis and, you know, people who don't believe in trans rights or whatever. The more conversations, the more open-mindedness we can have for every perspective that goes up to but stops at Nazis, the fewer Nazis we're going to have. Because if people feel like they are in whatever the, the in-group is defined as, and even if that's just a family group, if you're able to sort of have principled disagreements 
up to whatever the edge is, the bucket that you were talking about earlier, Ingrid, that's going to create a society that is as inclusive as possible of all of those ideas and therefore people will feel less need to completely break away. I don't know. Is that, is that, are we asking this or observing this? I guess the question is why, why do we care? Why do we want to get back to principled disagreements where we're not putting exclusionary moral valence on things to the point where it's like, it's not just that I disagree with you. It's that I think you're evil. Right. Right. That's it. Because without disagreement, there's no change. There's no progress. There's no invention. There's no nothing. And I guess, so that's the point. So it's like when you were talking about the, the, the teenager who got shut down in class the fear and probably this is probably backed up by research I haven't looked up, but I'm pretty it's like, you know, is that that person is either going to conform in a way that maybe feels inauthentic or that makes them feel bad or they're just not going to talk anymore because they got shushed in school or, you know, check in five years later and they're a Nazi. Well, I want here's what I want you to think about. And, and maybe this is a good segue into this piece. There are certain fundamental things that have to happen for any kind of disagreement or controversial anything to occur safely. And among them is feeling valued. Like we have to feel safe in the space we're in. So, you know, when we talk about parameters under which any kind of conversation should occur, there are always no-go moments. You should not, you know, abusive conversations are not safe. You want to get out of them. Things like that. So this is something that, that we were talking about before we came on air, you know, students who have opinions that then get shut down in class because they're controversial. Like maybe we're talking about microaggressions and someone wants to know why. Why am I talking about microaggressions? I don't understand why we are looking at things at that small of a level. Well, and I think the same goes, this is what I've heard from a couple of teenagers I work with is, I don't understand why I have to talk about privilege. Right. I I don't feel like I have that. I don't believe that is to be me, but I'm now walking into a room and feeling very like I have to constantly apologize. Right. And so, you know, what, what, what we were talking about earlier is this one particular story where a student asked us a question, why, why do I have to think about or understand this? And they were told, because this is a conversation we will have with a, you know, and, and that you don't get to question whether or not this is validly something. Now, don't get me wrong. We are not in this moment or on this podcast or in any way, shape or form questioning the existence of microaggressions or privilege. Mm -hmm. What we are trying to draw attention to is that if it's not safe to ask the question, the risk is that that person asking that question feels unsafe or more unsafe and they draw back and they, they anchor themselves in the very question. They get stuck fighting for the non-existence of privilege. Well, and then you go back to, then you go back to uh, the algorithms and that, that kid maybe doesn't speak up in class anymore, but they go to YouTube and they go and they type in, are microaggressions real? Oh, can you imagine, like, just just take a moment. Let's do a thought experiment of what, what pops up. I'm not even going to, I know what's going to come up on YouTube. If, if I were to, even me with my skewed uh algorithm right now if i were to go on my computer and say are microaggressions real we know what kind of videos would come up exactly and they're aimed for that these videos are aimed exactly to answer the questions that are getting shut down in a open dialect 
you know, we think about kids and, and at a certain levels being like incredibly curious. I don't know how you guys feel. I, I feel like I haven't gotten any less curious about the world now than I was when I was a kid. And that's probably different for everybody. But like, I'm constantly looking to know more, do better, whatever. I, my curiosity hasn't lessened, even though I've of a somewhat advanced age. And I go looking for those answers wherever I feel comfortable asking the question. And because like my trauma was around faith stuff and how I was sort of, I felt myself on the outside of the faith community I grew up in from basically the moment I was sentient. I don't ask those questions of the folks from that former community. I tend to ask them of people who have left those communities or are in a, in a, like a different faith community that I find more accepting. We're just having a different worldview. And I think it's important for us to understand without justifying, like that's the mechanic of that is probably pretty similar to how people radicalize to becoming Nazis. I don't want to say yes, but. I kind of think yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, I don't and disagree. I, and again, like I, would I have had less trauma as a child and would I sort of be more comfortable having disagreements with people in face-to-face -face situations if I was not told at a young age that X, Y, Z things make you go to hell and there's nothing you can do to stop that? Sure. Okay. So now you're getting into something that we talked about a handful of podcasts ago about the sort of how culture affects our ability to, t to pick up new information. Right. Ingrid, you were not with us at, at this point, but like I had some moments when we were talking with Vinay, who's a professor at GU about the what happens. This was our conversation about climate change and sort of climate change resistors. And he was talking about how culture really matters, whether it's your microculture, you know, your 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 family of origin or your larger culture where you live, that your experience of that world affects the way in which you pick up information. A similar thing can be said in terms of your experience growing up of your voice mattering will impact right now your ability to come to the table and have difficult discussions. I love difficult discussions. Well, and think about that. And doesn't that speak to advocacy? I mean, really, when you, when you get to the ability to disagree, you're going to advocate for yourself and others a lot more than because you are at a center, you have hidden influence. You know, when we talk about cultural, the book that is coming to my mind is the spirit catches you and you fall down. Do you mm. remember this book that was written? It's a true story about cultural, absolute mismarked communication um, in the hospital setting between uh, Western medicine and um, a family with a little girl, right? The spirit catches you and you fall down, epileptic seizures. But the, the translator was wrong. Everything was wrong. So they just, Western medicine ruined the ability for this family to disagree appropriately and to have, it's a phenomenal story, true. And there's so much to be said by the power of the majority and mm -hmm. how we really take out the power from anybody to disagree in any context, especially the cultural people, even in religion, right? To ask questions that are difficult to answer, to question something that everybody else believes to be the right way. Yeah. I mean, to get back to something you were saying earlier, Luke, about healing, I think for me that this discussion is like a stepping stone to larger discussions we have all focused on this idea that for there to be greater collective healing, we have to be talking about and looking at these bigger concepts, kind of both the bigger concepts, but also how 
our own personal journeys and how they intersect because I do think it matters. It matters profoundly who you are, what you you know, what your upbringing experiences were, whether or not you had trauma. I mean, all these things impact your ability to feel safe. And what we know is that for you to generate empathy, you have to feel safe. Empathy is not even like when your prefrontal cortex is not available to you, when you are in fight or flight, you're not like, hmm, I wonder how that bad guy feels about me right now and what exactly their childhood history was, that they <laughs> might be attacking they me. they had as a child right? that led them to this moment. <laughs> Can I just check in with you? No, none of that is happening. You're just running and you're, you're, not, yeah. you're not thinking about that. Empathy requires our ability to feel safe. I'll put this on the table. There's a lot of dominant culture in this conversation because it assumes autonomy, individuality. It assumes that I have a pretty good sense of who I am. And I want to recognize that while this is my perspective and, and, and this is what I see, th- there are pieces I'm sure that I am missing, that we are missing. Absolutely. Right? And so I don't, I, I want to be really careful about acknowledging that. It doesn't change that I do believe that we need to, to be figuring out a path to getting back to it being safe to be vulnerable and to stand for, you know, up for what we believe and to have space for the idea that someone else might not believe the same things. Absolutely. So I'm asking you this, Mm. how do you teach someone to communicate in a way that has empathy, that learns that person's value so that you have the ability to connect in some capacity? Because really, if we're value-based and not context-based, we start to have more understanding, even if we don't agree. So I think, you know, what you said best was how do we use change? What if we can use what science has taught us about our motivation for change to change the way in which we have a disagreement? Right. That's the magical paper that I was looking for. So you and I had talked about this before. What are the secrets of empathy? Or, Or what are the keys? I don't want them to be secrets, quite frankly. I want them to be keys of empathy. What are the pathways for accessing empathy? Uh, I mean, first and foremost, we have to be safe. And and I can't underemphasize this. And I think what I can emphasize is that safety looks looks like a lot of different things. I'm not just talking like you have a roof over your head. I'm talking that you feel like your voice matters. I'm talking about like when you sit across from someone that you're not feeling like you're going to throw up or your hands aren't so sweaty that you're embarrassed. Like there are a lot of different ways in which our body and our brain tell us we don't feel so safe. That's that's first. And if if we have things we want to share, but we are struggling to feel safe, yeah, it's a plug, but that's what therapy can help with. And, you know, that's why we have these conversations because as therapists, I have seen that change take place in someone. I have seen someone heal from the things that make them feel unsafe so that when they leave, and this is just, I mean, I get goosebumps thinking about this. They feel like they can be who they are and that they can put that in the room, mm-hmm. right? And that, that, so that's probably, I think, the most important piece. We need to be a lot more comfortable with pause. We, you know, talk about algorithms, electronics, social media, YouTube. I'm going to admit that I, so I, I just took a trip and there was some 
air travel and there was some time change and I was a little bit tired and I might have been scrolling a little bit more than usual when my foggy brain was just not willing to do anything else. And I got caught up in these Chinese videos where they're showing you all the really cool gadgets in their home. Have you ever seen? Don't, don't, don't even look. It's so bad. It's like ASMR plus really cool gadgets plus really shiny people. And I just was like going down this <laughs> thing. Time, time vampire. Right. What struck me during the whole thing was just how quick everything was moving and there, you know, like just like this intensity of it. And, and I had a lot of feelings about it, but this idea of a pause, it's something we are not like what caught me when I was scrolling was just how like I could just keep going and going and going and going. And this stupid algorithm was just like, Ooh, she likes these videos. And then it's like more and more and more until I literally noticed it was the same kid in the video, just a different video. And I was like, Oh, these are all staged. And like, luckily I shut my phone off, but there aren't a lot of cues right now for pauses being okay. We need to solve problems right away. We need to discipline right away. We need answers right away. We need political poll results right away. We need all of it. And the problem with all of that is, is that it's hard to be intentional when you don't pause, especially when emotions are on board. And there is no way to disagree without emotions. I just want to be a hundred percent clear about that. There's disagreement comes preloaded. Yes. And most disagreement comes in the form of the emotion of anger, frustration. Yeah. Or anger. Anger. Yeah. Frustration. Maybe a little. (laughs) Anger doesn't like pausing. No, no, but it needs it so badly. (laughs) Right. And so then, you know, that brings us to this idea of motivational interviewing. So for those of you listening who don't know, motivational interviewing is a therapeutic technique and it's actually used now by doctors and, and, you know, sort of healthcare professionals in a lot of different. I worked with police officers yep. and first responders yep. teaching them this. And it's this really incredible concept of meeting resistance where it is to create motivation for change. Mm-hmm. And a couple of the things that are really important is that in the immense amount of research that went into developing motivational interviewing, so it was originally developed at the University, I think, of of New Mexico, Bill Miller, who's no longer there, but for alcoholism, you know, and it's a very sticky, alcoholism is a very sticky sticky recovery process with lots of recidivism and, and lots of, if you know anything about the cycle of change, lots of people who like change a little bit and then go all the way Mm -hmm. back. And so they were trying to look for these ways of helping people to find more internal motivation because there's a lot of external motivation for substance use. Absolutely. But we all know, and the research shows that internal motivation is what creates change. Well, we need internal motivation to want to change just about anything. And so if you look at these concepts, they, they travel well. Disagreement and ambivalence towards change are normal responses. And they're necessary and an important part of the change process. So uh, here's what I want us to, to think about. What if knowing that we can have disagreements and come to a mutual understanding can exist, right? What if, what if we know that? What if, what if the basic premise is that as human beings, we can disagree and come to mutual understanding. When I think about the whole premise of motivational interviewing and what it, and what it is, is that I sit across and I'm like, oh my gosh, angry people just want to be heard. They just, oh yeah. yeah they it, just want to be heard. They don't need me to disagree right now because they're not in a place to openly accept it. They don't have the capacity to. And what motivational interviewing taught me was that I could do really good at making sure they feel heard 
And then, and only then can I start to have some sort of direction. And even if that direction is just to get them to go where they need to go, that's fine. Cause I take myself out of it. Right. Right. I don't know that we have enough time to unpack all the nuance of that because it is an incredible piece. And it actually, Luke goes back to something you said earlier about sort of extremists mm-hmm. in that, uh, Ingrid's absolutely right. Meeting anger head on with understanding diffuses anger. I had someone ask me once, what's the key to de-escalation? Just listening, just being able to say, I hear you, right? It's like one of the most effective techniques. Reflective listening. Yes. Reflective. It's one, it's the one time reflective listening is like spot on. Mm-hmm. And it's not more nuanced than that. And what's really, really interesting is that often when you do that, then you can literally have a conversation about change. Mm-hmm. You can put your idea on the table and the person across from you is actually able to say, all right, I could think about that. And I've had that happen Same. repeatedly. I love to think about it like, I mean, I don't know how many people drive manuals anymore. Few. But I think about the clutch. Like the more angry somebody gets, I just put that clutch in. And then the minute I see them de-escalate, I'm like, okay. Let's go into the gas pedal. Right. Let's start moving change. And then back, if they go back up, just straight to the clutch. And it allows for so much more growth in the conversation because you aren't meeting anger with anger because angry people want to be heard. Therefore, they're not going to, they expect you to be defiant. Well, and, and they want that, especially the extremists. They, they are, they are trained to answer your anger with anger. If you answer their anger with understanding, all of a sudden they're, they don't have anything. And you're not saying, I agree with you. Never is that, is that reflective listing saying, I agree wholeheartedly. You don't even take ownership. You just say, it sounds like you really value that. You just push it right back. Yes. I really value that. And then all of a sudden they're like, Oh, you see me as this identity. And that's when you can sit at the table. Hopefully extremists aren't, you know, well, you have to think of it in layers, right? Layers. Yeah. But I think the thing you're, you're not naming, but you're describing is safety. If I don't meet your anger with anger, I'm a safe person for you. Mm, Exactly. That's exactly it. I I'm, I'm willing to have capacity for you, even though you have no capacity for others. And if we go back to what I had said earlier, if if we are raising generations of young people who think that when someone disagrees with them, the world isn't safe, think about what that could mean. Think about those marginalized populations. If we, so, so to kind of bring it full circle, and maybe we pause here, that's why we're having this conversation. Because if we in the dominant culture don't push for there to be a reevaluation of this idea or, or, or of the avoidance of the 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 concept of me being able to be a safe person for you, then marginalized populations get pushed to the edge further and further and further because disagreement makes the world unsafe. We have to fix that. You know, I don't, I don't make a lot of absolutes as a therapist. It's, it's technically not my job ever. Right. Except for, I guess I have a few absolutes. Don't abuse your children, you know, that kind of stuff. But, but beyond that, it's really my job to hold space, but in holding space, that's what it's taught me when we don't advocate for being safe for one another. We accidentally push people who need that from us further and further away. And it's like the complete opposite of what we're driven to do when we're little. Exactly. That's lovely, actually. It's a lot, I think that's a good place to... I think it is. And I think the, the final thing that I wanted to say is that we're talking sort of 
culture wide and with people who can who feel like they have the capacity to do these things. So, Ingrid, when you're saying that like you need to hold space for people's anger if in order for them to feel safe, if you are the object of someone's anger, no, or that's, yeah. and, and you are or you don't feel like you just have the the capacity to be the person that can hold space for someone else's anger. You as an individual are in no yeah, under no obligation to no do obligations. that. You, it, it is not a moral failing right. for some for a Jewish person to not like actively try to convert Absolutely. Nazis or you know, bring Nazis back from the brink. It's but it is a societal responsibility, and this is part of what we're trying to talk. Like, I might even to. say, and and this. I'm okay with this being controversial. I might even say it's my, it's our job. I, don't, I hope that's not controversial. <laughs> as, yeah, as the I bigger population, it's our as job. As the whites dominant culture, that I think that really does bring us full circle. That's exactly it, Luke. It, no, it's absolutely, no one should be abused. No one should put themselves in places where they don't feel safe. You have to feel safe. I mean, that's, that is understanding your own privilege by saying like, I have, I have this privilege of being able to do this for these people that don't feel safe. So I should do that. And that's hard. That's really hard. And I think that's a lot of what we're talking about is stepping outside of that and recognizing that systematically we have to start doing that to have the growth that was necessary. But yeah, it's uncomfortable. There's there's a lot to be said on teaching these things. There's also level of understanding that it's okay to not want to do it either. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think anytime we have these conversations, these are ideas, They're, these are intersections. Exactly. These are conversations about how we move forward, but it's, it's always about if it works for you, if it fits for you. It's why we have the disclaimer at the beginning. And I, I always like to think that when we talk about change or being part of the, the greater change, we can do that at the micro level. And there's micro changes that can happen. We don't have to go full macro, right? Like you and I, Meg, are going bigger. We're going that macro, trying to reach all of these lovely listeners. But micro changes can be how you work with your kid at home. Exactly. And how you teach it right now at home. You don't have to go to the big protests and stand up. You, you can start by just teaching your children how to disagree healthy. Right. And I absolutely love that. It, it, this, this is a conversation intended to be applicable at any level, but... It is an important one. And with all the divisiveness right now, with all the pain, with all the hurt, I really want us to be having these conversations at all those levels, at the maybe I just start monitoring my own reactions level. I think, I mean, I, I honestly think you can be more micro than what I pass on to others and just notice what you're telling yourself. I think it can start there, but can we all be looking at the assumptions we make when someone disagrees with us? Knowing that there are always these moments where, you know, there are going to be like absolutes, absolutely don't go there, absolutely stay safe, you know, those pieces. If everybody f feels a little ooey about having these conversations, though nothing changes and maybe things get worse. So what what's the rubric, a personal rubric somebody could use to be like, is this a lack of safety or do I just feel icky and or just awkward not wanting to have this conversation? Is it something like if, you know, I'm just trying to think for myself, like what, what would, what's an internal metric I would use for what conversations do I feel safe having? Is it that like I walk through my life most of the time feeling pretty safe for a number of reasons, hundreds of reasons that have all sort of uh, sort of collided in me such that I don't feel unsafe most of the time. Therefore, and this is, I think, maybe an individual check-in everybody's going to have to do with themselves, 
maybe it's more my duty than other people's duty to have these conversations so that other people can feel safe and we can make change. It's my, it's my responsibility as per, somebody who feels safe 99% of my life to go out and do this work. Well, it's probably part of why I became a therapist, right? But is there a rubric? As I was listening to you, the, the answer to that question that was rising for me is we need to have that conversation with a whole bunch of other people at the table, none of whom are white. And maybe that's where we looked ahead. You know, even in my own work, if I'm going to put sort of a, an, a version of that answer on the table, it is always with the client's permission, right? And it's always with an understanding of that client's background. I don't ever walk into a first session and be like, so here's my list. Like, that's not what happens. It's a, who are you? Where do you come from? How did you get there? What do you believe? What makes you comfortable? What worry, you know, like I have all that information before I would ever say, so how about we try this? And often if I'm using cognitive behavioral therapy, regardless of whether or not the person is, looks white to me, I say, this is white dominant culture therapy. And I'm just going to put that out there largely originally, you know, devised mm -hmm. by men also just going to put that out there. I use it but with a lot of augmentation, but I just, I, I say that to almost every client I have these days because it just feels really important to do that. And so that they can say, you know, because it's very individualistically and autonomy based while that's the goal. I want people to know that they can say, Oh, that does not work for me. And right. I have other tools. That's just the one I'm offering you right now. We can do this, you know, and sometimes I don't offer it because I don't know that I think it's a good thing. So Luke, in a super indirect way, I'm trying to answer your question. I think that we're talking about being vulnerable and how do I determine whether or not it's safe to be vulnerable. If you're not already there, I would start small and with people that you already feel safe with. Can you have, con not even controversial, can you disagree with people you feel safe with well? If the answer is no, don't go any further. Start there. Like so almost practicing. Absolutely. And maybe do something that's not so intense, like Diet Coke or Diet Pepsi is better. Like and try to figure out. <laughs> Pizza or Chinese food. Right. right. Totally. And because... You know, another takeaway from being a therapist for two plus decades is slow is so much better than fast. Yeah, agreed. I was going to say, and this kind of goes back to what Luke was saying, is if I'm in Chicago, the only place you can meet me is in Chicago. I can't be anywhere else. Right. You have to meet me where I'm at. Um, and that is therapy. That is therapy. I, you walk in and where you are is where I'm going to go. You're not going to come where I'm at. That's an impossible feat. And it's not something that I think any therapist should assume when somebody comes to ask for help or to figure out what's going on inside of them. And it also comes back to something that we've talked about a number of times, which that it is that it has to be okay to not be okay. So, so I guess I would say that. And then also as a world, I can't think of a culture in which pause would not work. Disclaimer, I, I very well could be missing something, but, but for me, the beauty of a pause is that ability to be vulnerable, but maintain control because a pause can let you leave a conversation. Can we come back to this later? You know, if you start to recognize dysregulation in your body, no matter how safe the person across from you is, pause. You're, you, there's no requirement to like 
dig back in. So this is something I tell all families. There are only a few real emergencies, right? And they all involve the need to call 911, get out of the building, or go to the emergency room. Otherwise, are they an emergency? And so if we can ask ourselves that question, is this an emergency? And the answer is yes, then please just do whatever you need to do to get through that emergency. But if the answer is no, pause as much as you need. There's no bad parenting. There's no bad marriaging. There's no bad friendshiping. Okay. Yes. I'm making up words as we do this here in saying, I know we're not done with this conversation, but can we pause? And then coming back to it. I mean, don't leave it for a month, but pause, pause for an hour, pause for a couple of hours, pause for a day. I wouldn't leave it a lot longer than that, but Give yourself the time to re-regulate intentional parenting, intentional coupling, intentional friendshiping, intentional everything is just so much better. Agreed. And pausing is very hard because we are a fast-paced, solution-focused, let's be done with this. And so what we're doing is we're teaching a whole different way to communicate and to listen and and to hold space and to understand even if I don't agree. Absolutely. So on that note, how about we pause here? Thank you for listening. Thank you. Thanks again to Megan Ingrid for wanting to dive into one of the toughest conversations you can have in America in the year of our Lord, 2022. And thanks to y'all for listening. We always mean it when we say email us, call us. Remember, we have a phone number now, 509-508-1055. And give us your thoughts. But with this conversation, it's especially true. Like I've already said, this is the first of an ongoing series of discussions about how we rebuild the public square and hopefully rebuild the commons eventually. And the commons is made up of people. So let us know your thoughts, how we did, what we missed, maybe folks that you know about that you'd like to hear from on these topics in the future. Thanks also to Connor Bacon, Val Ozier, Stephen Smith, and Spokast Studios for production support. As always, you can support Range by becoming a member. Just go to rangemedia.co, that's .co, not .com and clicking the subscribe link. All right, that'll do it for us this week. Bye.